Cities that are vibrant and opportunity-rich don't become so by accident. There are specific factors that cause cities to thrive. In this conversation, we'll discuss policy changes city and state leaders should prioritize to create more cities of opportunity. Thank you all for joining us today. Um, Our work at the Bush Institute is about three main topics. Number one, ensuring opportunity. Number two, strengthening our democracy. And last but not least, advancing free societies. And today we're going to focus our conversation on this issue of opportunity and the role of cities in ensuring opportunity uh, for people all across this country. We, of course, are watching very carefully, as so many others are, what's happening halfway around the world in Ukraine right now as well. We have lots of commentary and resources on our website on that topic. And of course, we stand with the Ukrainian people um, in this fight. But today I'm joined by my two, um, by my colleague, Colm Clark. He is a director of the Bush Institute SMU Economic Growth Initiative here at the Bush Institute. I'm also pleased to be joined by uh, Henry Cisneros, the former mayor of San Antonio and the secretary of housing and urban development in the Clinton administration column. And Henry, if you could join me in this conversation, thank you both for being here today. Um, The reason we're talking about this topic today, um, Colum just released two reports um, on the future of U.S. cities here at the Bush Institute. Um, We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about a book that Henry and Cullum co-wrote called The Texas Triangle, An Emerging Power in the Global Economy. Um, They wrote that with their co-authors, David Hendricks and Bill Fulton. The the book really focuses on the rise of this mega region in Texas formed by the four big metropolitan areas here, Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, and San Antonio. Colm, I'm going to turn to you first. Um, You obviously, as I mentioned, wrote these two recent reports on the future of U.S. cities. We've seen, you know, through the COVID pandemic, some big trends that have been underway for decades across America's cities and metro areas, but they've also really been accelerated by some of the things we've seen in the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, Holly. Thank you very much. Um, Well, I think one big trend that we describe in the report uh, is that over the decades, um, the economy's grown more knowledge centric. Uh, And with that, there's been uh, what we call a change in the balance of power, if you will, between between talented employees on the one hand and employers on the other. Increasingly, uh, talented people decide where they want to live and employers follow. Uh, So so where actually have people gone? What we've seen over several decades is two big trends in terms of net migration around the United States. One big trend is people net-net moving towards certain areas, notably the big metropolitan areas of the Sun Belt, basically from North Carolina and Florida through Texas over to Arizona, uh, and also to a lesser degree to some smaller cities in the mountain and uh, Great Plains states. And they've been moving out of small town and rural America the Midwest, and increasingly from the big cities of the Northeast and the West Coast. The other big trend is a big movement away from core cities and towards high growth suburban areas, which is something we've written a lot about. The the pandemic, we argue in the reports, basically just accelerated these long-term trends. It didn't reverse them in any sense because we conducted a giant experiment in untethering people from workplaces. If they could, in a sense, for a time, work from anywhere, we were in a great big question. Where would they go? 
And what they in fact have done is an accelerated version of the long-term trends I've just been describing. So those are the big trends that, uh, that we're kind of working against as we talk about creating high opportunity places in America. So Cullum just highlighted some of those trends that we're going to dig into a little bit, but obviously you've been a policy practitioner. You've sat in the seat as a mayor, you've sat in the seat as a, as a cabinet secretary. Um, Talk a little bit about from a policymaker's perspective, what are some of the important trends for, for U.S. cities and, and things that have particularly sort of been exacerbated mm-hmm. by COVID? Well, first of all, Holly, uh, thank you for including me in this. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you to the Bush Center and thank you to Cullum Clark, whom I had the privilege of working with on the Texas Triangle book and whom I respect and admire a great deal. Um, for 20 years now, uh, the underlying forces in society, not just U.S. society, but in the world, have been very, very positive for urban areas. Uh, We know now that about 10 years ago, for the first time in the history of humanity, the majority of people live in urban areas. So there's clearly a movement to urban. In the United States, uh, my former chief of staff and head of the Brookings Center, Bruce Katz, wrote a book in which he described how, uh, despite the fact that about 65% of Americans live in the 100 largest metros, they produce 75% of the nation's GDP. That's just the 100 largest of the 10,000s of, you know, the thousands of cities that exist. And there's reasons for that. Uh, The world economy is an urban economy. Uh, We don't really... uh, trade as countries, we trade as pinnacle cities in those countries, Los Angeles with Tokyo or with Singapore or New York with Frankfurt or Dallas with um, London. Um, and so that's a, an underlying dynamic. Another is the, the the fact that people enjoy these urban places and the amenities that they provide. And then that the infrastructure of nations is supporting cities. So there's a lot of very positive factors that have been at work for a while. The pandemic proved very disruptive. It disrupted workplaces and people where, where people actually came to sit in physical places. Uh, it then disrupted small uh, retailers uh, from restaurants and every other kind of service. If you walk through New York, uh, last year, there would have been any number of businesses closed. We hoped temporarily, but now we can see some of them were not temporary. A lot of very positive, thriving places are closed today. The doors are closed. The schools were disrupted, as we know. Therefore, home life was, as people could not take their children to school. Someone had to stay at home with the children, and that disrupted the workplace even further. Public transit was disrupted as people were afraid in cities where they relied on public transit to use those crowded places where they might be touching the same surfaces and with other people. uh, And they have not come back yet. And then there were uh, fears of out migration from the cities, as some people basically said, I've had it. Uh, There's got to be a better life and I'm going somewhere else. So this has been a very disruptive period. And let me just close by saying as a policymaker, meaning when I was at HUD, we rode the wave of this kind of urbanization trend within the country and began to really focus on the recognition that if we supported our cities, we were supporting the national economy and national prosperity. That has been disrupted. 
And it's yet to be seen the kinds of things we have to do to get back on track. I think we have the outlines of what we need to be doing, but it's very serious for some places that have been seriously damaged. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about that column. You you outline in your reports this sort of formula for what cities um, need to do to build prosperous, high opportunity places. You know, what's in that formula? What do cities need to be doing to get it right? Well, one thing, um, Holly, that I've, I've learned from working with Henry uh, uh, is uh, the basic idea that cities everywhere are competing for talent. They're competing for business and so forth. And if a city isn't investing in the future and creating the kind of the, the prosperous place of the future, then it's it's losing it's losing the competition and it's in decline. Um, uh, so one thing we really try to do in this report is to kind of nail down what are the big things that count, recognizing that there are many, many small to mid-sized things too, uh, just to try to organize our thinking about what it means to create prosperous high opportunity places. So, so we argue that you can kind of boil, boil the formula down to a handful of things. Number one, great cities uh, relentlessly emphasize education, educating their people and uh, being centers of innovation. Uh, number two, uh, they uh, build strong communities that can work together to solve collective challenges. Number three, they welcome newcomers, including immigrants, because newcomers can so often bring new ideas and enterprise uh, to a city. Number four, they emphasize affordable quality of life so that a wide variety of people actually would choose to and afford to live there. And finally, they are growth and, and commerce-friendly places, including, among other things, building the infrastructure that allows commerce to uh, thrive at large scale. So uh, it, these may seem kind of obvious, but what we do in these reports is we dig into a lot of individual cities and we show um, that this, this kind of formula has been very much at work in recent times in the U.S. and a great many cities don't score so high on some of these measures, and it's gotten them into trouble. And we also try to identify relative outperformers on this or that metric with the idea that we can all learn from success. So talk. I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about those high performers. Um, and you, you sort of took a regional look across the country at different places, different cities, different regions. Um what are some of those regional patterns you found as you dug into individual cities and how they're doing? Yes, well, we we did uh, we do a variety of quantitative things to basically identify cities, really metropolitan areas that have been in recent years outperformers on various measures of, of inclusive growth and opportunity for people who live there. And based on that, we we do identify a number of outperformers. And what's interesting is that they tend to group together in certain geographic patterns. So in certain parts of the country, you see repeated patterns that are working uh, in various places. But what's interesting is no place no place has the whole formula. They have kind of part of it. So Henry and I have written about big Texas metropolitan areas. In our report, we can consider the four big metropolitan areas of Texas as part of the Sun Belt and within the Sun Belt, including also places like like uh, Raleigh, Durham, and Charlotte, and Nashville, and over to Phoenix. Uh, there are a number of big, very fast-growing metropolitan areas that have gotten some things very right. They have remained relatively uh, growth-friendly and affordable compared to cities elsewhere. Uh, they have built the infrastructure to so far to allow for a lot of growth, although that remains a challenge going forward. Henry's worked on this a lot. Um, uh, they have... Um, 
I, I think also actually scored pretty high for welcoming a wide variety of newcomers. On the other hand, they don't always necessarily score, hope, score, score so high for educational results, for example. Um, another group that we identify is it's kind of a, a little bit of an unconventional way to organize geography, but it turns out in kind of the northwestern quadrant of the country, running from essentially Minnesota through the Dakotas, over through Colorado, Utah, and the Pacific Northwest, wide, very different geographies, but you wind up with some really similar patterns. You wind up with a number of metropolitan areas that score really quite high for getting quality of life things uh, in, in, in pretty good shape, people, surveys keep showing. Uh, they also score very high for what for what we and economists in general call social capital, for civic engagement, um, trust among mm -hmm. citizens, building a collective capacity to get things done in their communities. A wide variety of cities from Minneapolis, St. Paul to Denver to Salt Lake, very different places uh, score quite high in that. On the other hand, there are other measures that they don't score so high in. So that's a pattern. And then a third pattern uh, I'd love to come back to because I think it's exciting is the emergence of some uh, really turnaround stories in the um, industrial Midwest. Uh, yep. We would single out uh, Columbus, and, Columbus and Indianapolis, but I think also some slightly smaller places, Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, for example, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. There are a number of places that actually are growing and they're they're actually doing better, I think, oftentimes than the media understands. So there are a lot of things happening out there, some of them quite uh, positive. So we're we're tracking these trends closely. Henry, can you talk a little bit about San Antonio? Obviously, that's your hometown. You led that city, um, and it's it has been experiencing been experiencing rapid growth. Talk a little bit about what San Antonio has gotten right. I'm happy to do that, Holly. But let me just first of all say uh, I appreciate Cullum's analysis. I think the analysis about high performing cities is correct, uh, and I appreciate the 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 focus of the Bush Center on problem solving and you know looking to the future and and concrete ways to make things better i would say however that that we're off our game a little bit right this minute as cities uh and i i i i take my cues from the people who are becoming mayors now or in transitions and the job that is before them uh, for example mayor eric adams in new york who is confronting a crime wave for example or mayor a uh, Garcetti in Los Angeles, who's about to step down and become ambassador to India, but his successors are wrestling with how they're going to deal with homelessness. And even, even cities that are prosperous, number one growth city in the country like Austin is, is wringing his hands yeah. with an unmanageable homelessness situation. So I would say that right now, uh, Colum is completely correct about the longer term future, but there's mayors who are dealing with Almost every mayor I can think of in the country and every city in the country is dealing with the critical questions of the moment. How do people return to work? And is remote work going to change the makeup of their downtowns and their business districts? Right. Uh, is the, the, the old formula of a lot of workers creating downtown vitality and so forth broken because the, the, the workers are not going to be in and they're working remotely? Families and school-aged children, has that issue settled out with children, the schools operating in a reliable way? I just saw some data that showed even in cities that are generally healthy, in January, they missed six days uh, it just in, in, in the most recent January, uh, which is a lot of time. That's, that's better than a week worth that, 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 it, that caused crises uh, in the cities. 
So the issue of how schools are going to function, then uh, there is the the issue of crime. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of crime that some people attribute to the dysfunctions created by the pandemic, the stresses and the mental health issues that came as a result of the pandemic. So Cullum is totally right about where we want to be going. But if you were talking to most mayors today, they they want to get there, but yeah. they have to get over the hump right now with these immediate situations. And San Antonio is an example of that. San Antonio, you're right, has been one of the nation's fastest growing cities uh, from uh, roughly 2010 to 2020. The, the fastest growing cities by jobs were Austin, Nashville, and San Antonio in the country. But San Antonio got hit hard, a body blow by the pandemic because a good part of our economy has been tourism and specifically conventions. We have over a thousand conventions a year, bring 30 million people a year to the most visited spots in Texas, like the Riverwalk and the Alamo and the other uh, amenities that we have like SeaWorld and Fiesta, Texas. And they, hotel occupancies were at 10% in the depth of the pandemic. They're just climbing back now, but lots of jobs were lost. Uh, that spread over to restaurants. It spread over to uh, uh, transportation providers. It spread over to the, all of the surrounding industries. And what we see across the country is that cities that depended heavily on tourism, which is more and more cities, right? Uh, therefore, depended on the sales taxes and revenues created by that, and their budgets were dramatically hit. Now, it's helpful that the administration, both end of Trump and beginning of Biden, uh, put out emergency federal grants in large amounts and stabilized those budgets so they didn't end up with massive deficits that would require cuts and so forth. But we're still in a period where the, the, the challenges are extraordinary. I, I use the word extraordinary quite literally. I mean, they are outside the ordinary of what cities have dealt with. When we get back on track, Cullum's formula is exactly right, and it's where we need to go. But but we got to get back on the bicycle and, and, and ride. Yeah. Well, there are, so there are some, some very significant issues, you know, you both highlighted these trends over time of populations in cities, the growth of cities, but we, we, Henry, you're right. There's some very big current issues that are sort of making that tough right now. One is crime. Number two, housing costs. Number three, issues of homelessness. Let, let's take those, you know, um, and, and slice those down a little bit. Any thoughts from either of you on some of the current sort of crime issues and how that sort of changes the conversation on cities and or what policymakers should be doing right now? Well, I'll, I'll be happy to start. I think a mayor like Eric Adams, who's a former policeman and the new mayor of New York, has the essential formula correct. That is to say, a really, really competent policing and insistence on high standards of practice by the police. Forget the notion of defunding the police. They need additional funding, maybe slightly differently than in the past, but they need funding to, to, to do things like including mental health workers in their task forces and things of that nature. But clearly there cannot be tolerance of, of, uh, uh, you know, uh, criminal behavior on the streets. Uh, and I think 
most cities in the country, including Minneapolis, where the whole George Floyd episode unfurled. And that would have probably been the lead city in the country to uh, change its policing practices uh, in a referendum voted to fund the police and, 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 and enhance the policing. So that clearly is an important piece of, of that equation, the crime equation. Uh, Colin, what would what I want to add on that front? Yeah, I, I, certainly our reports don't go in depth into how to do policing better, and I doubt we will tackle that one. Uh, but I do think there's a larger principle that I, I guess I would say very much, I would, I would echo what Henry said. Uh, I think that um, it's a false dichotomy to think that cities must either choose um, uh, public safety or justice. Uh, uh, they, they just finally have to deal with the very challenging issue of how you create a reasonable, reasonably high expectation that it's safe to, you know, drive or walk around your city uh, and also build trust in communities that historically have not been treated well by police in a number of cases, notably black and Hispanic communities. Uh, there just isn't any way to get around that. They just they just have to do both of those things. And I think the ones that do um, uh, that they will reap the benefits. They, they it will be very clear that they are uh, as, as painful as it is to see each each you know incident of crime or whatever. Um, we'll, we'll know which ones are kind of spiraling out of control and which ones are doing at least a reasonably good job. Yeah. Holly, the other issue you mentioned you mentioned is homelessness mm -hmm. uh, as, as a vexing problem in the short run. And the uh, what we're seeing, I think, very clearly is the lack of affordable housing uh, and more and more people are coming to the streets. Uh, the, the number of women with children who are homeless is up and the number of elderly people who are homeless is up. And that's as a result of their inability to stay in uh, rental housing. And, and uh, we see the you know, when, when evictions are allowed uh, again. Uh, broadly, we're probably going to see a further increase in in homelessness. But the the answer really revolves around having enough housing at the price points uh, that people really really need it. Uh, San Antonio led the country, and I use those words advisedly, in creating something called Haven for Hope, which is an entire campus that includes dental care and medical care and overnight facilities for some homeless and longer term boarding facilities for women with children and all kinds of diagnosis and treating and, and educational assistance. And yet our homeless problem is very visible on the streets because though we created a place for people to go when they're homeless, we did not create a place for them to go long term transition housing or longer term housing. And that is the new challenge in cities. Places like Austin are experimenting with things like really small housing, tiny housing, and entire communities, development subdivisions, if you will, of tiny housing for people who are homeless. We're starting a new one in San Antonio as well. But uh, we have not broken the code on the homeless problem. And it is really unacceptable to walk through the streets of a modern American city and step over people who are spending the night on a cardboard, on a piece of cardboard uh, at a store in a storefront. Yeah. Um, let's dig into this issue of housing and housing prices. 
Um, I, I mean, every day that I open the news, I feel like there's a story that just a year over year growth, you know, increase in housing prices is bigger and bigger and bigger. And of course, places that had been considered affordable are now unaffordable to a lot of people out there. So number one, you know, how should we be thinking about this? What, what can cities do? What can they do and what should they be doing that they're not already to put themselves on a better path? The main thing they're not doing is producing enough housing at affordable levels. It is a supply problem. There isn't enough supply of pricing at the lower levels. And cities have a big voice in that through the way they zone, through the way they permit, through the fees that they charge developers, the obstacles that they place at making housing more difficult, including nimbyism in particular neighborhoods and the city's unwillingness to, to take that on. Uh, including really lack of creativity in uh, providing uh, incentives, support, subsidies for housing at lower prices. Um, and But I must say uh, the problem has reared its head so intensely that more cities are now becoming engaged. San Antonio will have a bond issue this May, a couple of months, for the first time in its history, there'll be a $150 million choice for voters to put in place incentives and subsidization of housing with $150 million of municipal funds that had never been allowed in our city charter. We changed the charter in order to make that possible. It's just one example of kind of the extraordinary lengths that cities are going to, including places like Austin, very notably, um, with the massive homeless problem it has. I guess what I would add, Holly, is um, for, first of all, I think it's important that that people recognize that what we're seeing in terms of the explosive increase in housing prices in so many American cities uh, reflects a historic policy failure in America, really a colossal failure that, that, that extends back over really the last couple of decades. Um, economists have shown that in the 20th century, in general, in American cities, what we saw was that housing supply responded relatively quickly to rising populations uh, in cities across America. And therefore, um, uh, price levels, they might fluctuate to a certain degree, but we didn't see typically this kind of parabolic move upwards. Uh, but it has certainly been documented that in countless ways across America, uh, generally speaking, local governments have devised ever, essentially ever more ways to block new housing supply. I agree with Henry that oftentimes that is a response to um, the demand by people in the immediate vicinity of where new housing might be built uh, to not see their neighborhood change. Um, some people have pointed out that what used to be not in my backyard sentiment has turned into not within five yards of my, not within five miles of my backyard. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, elected officials can be very responsive to that. Uh, on top of that, we seem to have created uh, layers upon layer of bureaucracy and things like permitting offices uh, that have developers pulling their hair out in frustration. Um, so there's, it, it, it's going to take a lot of different uh, different uh, directions at once. But just to give you a, a couple of quick thoughts on where we might go with this, um, one is I think there really is an, a role for local leaders to kind of recalibrate, help, help their citizens to recalibrate how they think about new housing and newcomers coming into their city and help them to understand uh, that more rooftops 
And more income can also mean more amenities, better stores and restaurants, uh, a bigger tax base that in turn can support better schools. Um, so I think to help people to recapture this idea that uh, a, a certain amount of uh, growth and welcoming attitude to new people coming into the neighborhood actually um, will be good news for the people who are already there. Uh, I think that's not just a, a sort of a, a idle speculation on my part, but I think we're seeing that. And we've written about this in a number of things at the Bush Institute. Uh, we see it in a number of basically really high growth suburban places that have the great luxury of painting on kind of a blank canvas. And when they can sort of from the start explain to their citizens what a, a kind of a, a growth friendly approach is going to create in their city, the citizens will in some cases buy in. So I think in our in our great core cities, it's a function of leadership in part. Uh, it's also a function of bringing a lot of different policy tools to bear. So I think in, every city mayor understands what the set of policy tools are and different cities have moved forward at different paces with different of them. Uh, but there's a, a lot to be done on the affordable housing front. And one other thing, I think there's also a, a, a potentially something that uh, this is something I'd like to explore more in, in coming times, uh, room for a certain amount of recalibration of the relationship between federal funding sources mm -hmm. and cities. Uh, because one, one thing that I think is kind of dismaying is when uh, HUD money coming into cities comes with so many strings and rules and so forth that there are city bureaucracies and specialized developers who only work with that funding source uh, and the private sector is kind of miles away and not engaged in those same activities, we somehow have to figure out how to use that federal funding source alongside private sector expertise and private capital to create mixed income communities uh, that uh, are partly financed one way and partly financed another way, but all kind of in the same place. We're, we haven't been very good at that. And I think that's a great challenge of our time. Yeah. Um, we've had a couple questions come in uh, from our audience talking about sort of this issue of, and then Colm, I'd love for you both to dive into this. I mean, we use the word city, but often we don't actually mean one, like let's look at the Dallas area, right? There's right. Dallas proper, and then there's the entire DFW region. Um, which is a whole host of quickly growing cities, many mm -hmm. of them, you know, in the northern suburbs growing much faster than the city of Dallas ever is. Um, so there is this tension in regions between sort of city and suburb. There's in some ways some efforts to move to, you know, um, uh, what I would call sort of mixed use, multifamily, sort of walkable housing. But there's also a lot of tension around that, as you all have talked about. Dig into that a little bit. I mean, what are when when you sort of talk about some of these ideas and recommendations, what <clears throat> tensions do you see in regions between city and suburb? Or how do we make sure both city and suburb are able to grow? Henry, can I, can I, you want to do that, Henry? I'd, I'd love to talk speak to it as well. Well, why don't you and I'll follow you. I'm happy. To. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I think, first of all, the whole story of core city versus suburb has been changing dramatically over not just the last few years, but the last two or three decades. Um, I think there's a kind of outmoded idea that the, the, the core city is kind of where the amenities are, where there's walkable density and so on. And the suburb suburbs are where there's essentially uh, endless um, uh, single family residential and not much uh, else. Um, and also that the suburbs are much more ethnically homogeneous and also homogeneous on income lines kind of places. Um, that is increasingly outmoded. And we show this in one of our reports through a 
I think quite a few examples of, we have a, a data set that we've put up on a number of suburban places that show how outmoded that view is. Uh, what, we've, what we're actually seeing uh, is that um, some really successful suburban places are basically creating fully formed mini cities, uh, kind of painting on a blank canvas as it were and, just, and deciding the kind of city they wanna be. And that ends up including uh, a number of, um, uh, let's say, culturally interesting, walkable destination neighborhoods. To, you know, when young people come around and say, what, 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 yeah, but what do people actually do here? There actually is stuff to do. Um, uh, bit where businesses are increasingly putting headquarters uh, or, um, you know, offices and so forth that aren't sort of your traditional, like one story, low slung uh, uh, kind of uh, suburban office park that goes on and on, but actually, you know, they're, they're in things that look like the, the companies are locating in things that look like cities with mixed use and housing right nearby and restaurants and everything else. Um, so that is increasingly happening. Where that's happening, it's working. Uh, and I think there's a lesson for uh, the core cities uh, as well. Um, I, I, you know, I also one other thing is that the the successful suburbs are turning drastically more ethnically um, diverse. Uh, that's happening very, very fast with enormous numbers of both immigrants and black and Hispanic and Asian people who have long been in America or their parents or maybe maybe over many generations um, resettling to suburban places so that they are becoming much more diverse. So that's that's a big change uh, as well. Um, you know, I do think there's just overwhelming evidence that a, a substantial part of the population does value certain things and cities need to be good at providing it. Yes, they do value um, uh, having some interesting walkable places where it's, you know, there's fun stuff to do. Some people may want to actually live within, you know, maybe when they're young or whatever, uh, within um, walkable range or in the, in the heart of that. Other people may want to drive over to it and then get out of the car and enjoy a day doing a bunch of different things all on foot. Um, but people want that and cities need to deliver it. A number of places are. Um, I think another thing, this has been in some of the questions uh, that I, I've seen uh, just now, uh, is um People are really valuing outdoor amenities, green space, trails, uh, you know, interesting waterfront type places they can they can go. And uh, the, the typical city, uh, I think, probably under provides that, particularly it under provides it in historically underinvested lower income neighborhoods. That makes it very hard to turn those neighborhoods around, by the way. And I think also even in, in really high growth places where a lot of new development is happening, um, you know, uh, as, as, as developers have a crucial role to play, but leave them to their own devices. And it may well be that, you know, high growth suburban cities will under under invest in the natural natural world, natural amenities and so forth, or or pave over things that really shouldn't be paved over because of just the economics of it. So cities have to take the long view in what they're trying to create and what is going to ultimately make people want to live there over the long term. And uh, so that's that's the kind of thing we're, we're, we're trying to identify in these reports. Henry? I would say that the tension between city and suburbs within the metro is, is definitely counterproductive because the true entity, the living organism, is the metro. When I talked earlier about these pinnacles around the world, uh, Singapore and Tokyo and Frankfurt and London and 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 all across the world, all over the world, northern hemisphere, second, uh, southern hemisphere, uh, they are they're they're the metros. Now we live with the, um, the 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 structure that we have, which is the central city and then multiple suburbs, and I don't expect that to change, and it and it shouldn't. 
uh, and therefore people focus on what they the mayor of the central city has takes takes a, a view that that he has to focus on the central city or she but uh, there need to be increasingly effective umbrella governance structures like the councils of government uh, in D the Dallas area. There's the councils of government and then there's the North Texas Commission, which is very, very good at speaking for the region as a whole. And they're, they're, they're anchor institutions that are re really regional in character like the airport in most cities is regional in care, like the, the transit system that can link some of the city and the suburbs for workers is regional, like the, the, the road system, for example, uh, and, and many other things that water, planning for water and, and power and other basic infrastructure uh, can be done on a regional basis. So uh, the, the, the most effective places are places that have some sort of overarching regional entity that can do planning. I think North Texas has done better than most in that respect. But I mean, Los Angeles, for example, has 88 cities in Los Angeles County, and they oh. rarely ever speak to each other in a constructive way uh, and have yeah. no real, real effective mechanism for doing that. Uh, so that I think is very important as we think about, you know, if you, if you uh, what I like to tell people is the way to, to think about a city is flying into a region, into an urban place at night in an airplane and looking at the where the lights begin and where the lights end. And it's a lot bigger than the central city. Right. And it's a lot more than just the suburbs. It is an integrated, throbbing, uh, interwoven, living organism. And we need to be thinking about how, 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 that, how that works. Holly, can I say one more thing about core cities? I talked about suburbs and Henry inspired me to say something additional. Uh, and that is, I've, I've talked about how suburbs are turning into something very different than at least the successful ones than historically maybe they were. Uh, I think there's a real opportunity ahead for um, core cities to turn into something that's very different than what they have been as well. Typically core cities have great assets to build on. Uh, they generally have the best arts and culture amenities, for example. They uh, they very likely might they might have sports stadiums. They have a number of things of that of that nature. But they also have uh, something that is uh, is kind of a, a disadvantage until you turn it into an advantage. They have these these traditional central business districts where I would argue city after city made a historic mistake by trying to create a monocultural a central business district that was nothing but you know tall buildings holding white collar office workers in the middle of the day where everyone leaves at five o'clock and then it's dead. Um, and there's a great opportunity to turn traditional downtowns into, um, into interesting urban mixed use environments, to turn where it's, where it's physically possible, office towers into apartments uh, and get new kinds of uses. And I think that mayors everywhere are actually trying to do that. Right here in Dallas, there's been some really good progress on that front. Uh, and I think that's that's an opportunity for core cities yeah. to to not to, to have even the traditional business center be a place where people live and, and work and play. Holly, before you go to the questions, I'd like to take just a, a second, if I could, and make the transition from the problems we're facing today and the pandemic in particular and the things that mayors will have to be doing to get to where. Cullum's vision of the of, of, of highly successful, prosperous places can be real. And uh, we're at a point of inflection in, I think, our urban thinking 
in that technology makes new things possible. And the pandemic has really woke us up, woken us up to where things are. And I think it's critically important to think about what problems do we really have and what are the demographics that we work with? What are the economics that we work with and set out on the path that Cullum wants for us in that respect? So let me just tick off a handful of things here. Schools. We're seeing a lot of imagination and experimentation in magnet schools and charter schools matched with public schools and 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 the traditional private schools. But a lot of school options are important in our cities. New healthcare decentralization. I think we learned in the pandemic you can't treat people in just monolithic county hospital. We've got to have a, a decentralized clinics across the metropolitan area to get to where we want. Cullum has talked about walkable scale. I call it villages within the city, neighborhoods that really function as if they were villages within the city. And a lot of communities are moving in that direction. Mass transit is important. And it's particularly important, going to be important in, in inner city mass transit, linking major growth nodes together, like, for example, high-speed rail will do connecting Dallas and Houston, and of course, the airports. Um, higher education, what we call anchor institutions. There's, you, you can't name one of the prosperous cities in America that doesn't have a massively successful major university, whether it's a place like um, Marquette in, in um, Milwaukee or Columbia and NYU in New York City or uh, SMU in, 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 in Dallas. But, but higher education and all that it implies, not just in opportunities, but in contracting and economic impact, um, housing affordability, massive focus on production of adequate, affordable housing, or we're going to have a permanent underclass and worse, people are literally on the streets with health problems and so forth. And then there's the whole issue of interracial, intercultural relations, including immigrants, which is an essential piece of the policy dynamic in our, our cities. If we want to get to the, the place of high performance that, that Clark was um, describing and bridge from the present pandemic-related and other issues, these are the kinds of things that we ought to be uh, highlighting, yeah. it seems to me. Thank you. So uh, one of the questions that came in, um, and Colm, you knew I was going to return to this. You mentioned it earlier. I grew up in the industrial Midwest, as President Biden mentioned last night, the Rust Belt, which apparently we're trying to move away from that name there. Um, but one of the questions came in, talked about the fact that that recent migration is really seen sort of out migration from the industrial Midwest to other places. Number one, talk a little bit about that. But number two, you also identified some sort of industrial Midwest turnaround stories. You mentioned a few of them earlier. So what are you seeing in that region and what can cities be doing um, to, to create opportunity and growth? I think, thanks, Holly. I think on that first question about where people are going, yes, it's true that the uh, most recent evidence from like uh, moving companies and U-Haul and so forth, uh, still suggests that the net movement on the whole is out of the region and out of those states, not, not into it. Um, however, uh, there are a number of cities and metropolitan areas in the Midwest that are bucking that trend. Uh, it's, it's 
it's pretty clear which ones. I think I mentioned before that uh, notably of the bigger ones, Indianapolis and Columbus are clear outperformers. Grand Rapids, which was written off as a city of the past, turned out to be actually a, an outperformer as well over the last uh, decade. Um, so there are there are a number. There are others that are that are that are losing population pretty pretty fast, particularly the core cities. One thing that we kind of highlight in the report is that over the, the sort of the longer scheme of history, when cities get enough things wrong, they can see really calamitous declines in population. Obviously, that's happened in Detroit, most famously, but it's happened in some other Midwestern places as well. But others are starting to uh, to grow. So I, I, I'm actually optimistic about the scope for that Columbus-Indianapolis model to spread. Now, let me say another thing. What is that model? Um, some time ago, you'll remember we had uh, Harvard economist Ed Glazer, one of the leading uh, urban economists in, in America on, on our stage at the Bush Institute, and he's written, and I strongly agree, that um, uh, turning around a place like a, you know, a Pittsburgh, if you will, a, a, a South Bend, Indiana, right? Uh, turning, turning around a place in the industrial Midwest, it, it, it just isn't going to happen by somehow reviving the industries of the past, whether through trade protection against foreign imports or anything else. It, what he says is success basically is going to come from like a snake sloughing uh, off its old skin and turning into something totally new, um, and uh, I think that's what we've seen with the cities that are that are that are succeeding. We're seeing, uh, particularly in the Midwest, uh, we're seeing that uh, cities that once were known for their manufacturing prowess—they're still manufacturing things, but typically that employs a lot fewer people than it used to because we've had so much automation. What you're seeing is the is the rise of knowledge-centric industries. You're seeing. Um, uh, new kinds of technology and life science businesses that maybe spin out from some of the really great universities in the in the in, in around those those cities. Um, uh, so what you actually see is like manufacturing turns out to be really a surprisingly small fraction of employment and of the economy in those midwestern cities that are succeeding. So I think it is about embracing the future, as it were. It's about um, basically saying there isn't any substitute, for example, for creating a highly educated workforce. Uh, one thing that was notable about the manufacturing industries of the past uh, is oftentimes, as is, 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 has been oftentimes you know, written about in maybe the 1940s or 50s or something, that a, a kind of a, a, you know, a blue collar factory job could actually produce a middle income uh, you know, for a family, for a you know, single earner family uh, without the person having you know, an advanced degree or particularly detailed technical skills. Uh, I, I think we want to argue that era is over. There's, there's no going back. The future necessarily involves uh, being a center of knowledge generation, education, and innovation. And that, and I think a number of the Midwestern cities have a, a whole lot of ability to uh, a lot of potential for further progress along those lines. Holly, let me say just a couple of quick words uh, about that. Uh, first, uh, Colm is completely correct that the cities need to be thinking in terms of how they fit into the new economy. A new economy that is business services, new media, international trade, higher education, medical centers, tourism. Those are the elements of the American economy today. And the cities that capture that are the cities that will be able to succeed. And some cities in the Midwest, aside from Columbus and Indianapolis, which have been on a very good track for a long time, but places that were in the dumps are coming back, like Pittsburgh which has done it on the basis of uh, the university there, the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon, along with, um, along with uh, uh, small business, technology, uh, 
uh, replacing steel. And uh, uh, Pittsburgh is a model for, for, for the, the, the Midwest. S Cleveland. Cleveland uh, has, is building a, on the Cleveland Clinic and um, a, a Case Western Reserve University, uh, which are relatively close and linked together by transit. And they have sort of gone from, well, Cleveland in its prime had more Fortune 500 company headquarters than New York, but uh, in the industrial era. It, it, it clearly doesn't anymore, but they're finding new businesses like medical devices spun off of that university and Cleveland Clinic connection. So I think that is the path yeah. for those that are inevitably going to decline. And let me just say, despite what we're describing here as options for growth, they're not going to come back to the same size that they were. Detroit was the fourth largest city in America once upon a time and had nearly 2 million people. It now can't break past 650,000. So for cities like that, not only must they think in terms of how they relate to the new economy to hold their own and maybe gain a little bit, but they, they have to do a new kind of planning in our country, which is right-sizing, downsizing, because 650,000 people in Detroit spread across a geography that once housed 2 million means there's a lot of open space there and a lot of empty neighborhoods and a lot of place entire blocks that are completely yeah. vacant and plant sites that are vacant and and mayors in places like Detroit the perhaps the best example of 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 a, of a, of a city actually working positively to downsize right size as they call it is Youngstown Ohio who's gone through that on a smaller scale yeah um, okay, I want to hit on two of the questions that came in from our audience uh, that are related. So I'm going to I'm going to put them together. And and you all have talked about this a little bit, but let's get more specific. Obviously, the pandemic has really given cities sort of a chance to rethink how they're designed. Henry, you talked about remote work and just sort of the changing, you right. know, how that how that's really changing things. So, um, what urban innovations have you witnessed that you'd like to see adopted more broadly? And also. You know, for cities with all this downtown office space, sort of, what do they do with it, and what are what are some potential innovations for how cities think about sort of this post COVID time? Well, it's an it's a very difficult question because there's nobody really out on the on, on in front right now. But there are cities doing interesting things. Uh, New York is working very hard to make it easier for young people to come back to the city because they know that a lot of those who left were older, afraid of the pandemic, or families with children who had to adjust to the pandemic. But young people, uh, there are whole neighborhoods in New York that are now hipster neighborhoods. And uh, with the appropriate uh, business uh, setups as well for, uh, for, for young people. Uh, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh put out a call for immigrants. Imagine that. In other places, people seem to be afraid of immigrants or are blocking their way. And these are cities that said, one way we're going to grow is to be immigrant friendly. And Lord Almighty, some immigrant groups are immensely entrepreneurial. If you bring uh, Dominicans or certain Asian groups or um, uh, there, there are many others from across the country, I suspect we're going to see co people coming from Ukraine. You, you end up with some very motivated, entrepreneurial, capable people. The Bronx, which was once the, the, the you know, the 
poster child for urban decline now has a million Dominicans building neighborhoods and housing and bodegas and 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 retail establishments. So those are a, a, a couple of things that I think we see in cities. Yeah. It's a couple I would add, Holly. Uh, um, you know, one giant question that we've just kind of glancingly touched on is the future of work. Where, where are we all going to be working? Um, and uh, I, I just keep reading these surveys of employers and, you know, ordinary people and so forth uh, that all seem to me to suggest the same things, that um, uh, neither extreme is going to happen. We're going to have more flexible workplaces, more flexible timing as to when people are in the main office and when they're someplace else. Uh, and uh, I think that creates an opportunity in cities because um, it, it, you know, it seems to me that, well, I think we've learned that humans are a very social species. And when they were, you know, kind of locked down and then and then released, you know, they just they, they, they really wanted to get out. Right. And there's a great many. Um, I think I think we'd, we it, if you, you know, quiz people carefully, you'd find out that people who in many cases, if they were like in a small apartment by themselves all the time, that they were going nuts. Um, uh, and at the same time, maybe they don't want to make that long commute uh, five days a week to some, you know, central city workplace. So I think that creates an opportunity for creating more third spaces within cities, uh, more places that are kind of close to where there's a lot of uh, people living, where there's you know, um, WeWorks or common desk type places, but coffee shops and some outdoor places to hang out with your laptop and so forth, maybe get together with a handful of people that you work with on your team. Uh, I think getting um, a lot more creative about um, just how people come together someplace other than the traditional workplace uh, and both socialize and actually work as well. I think uh, I think we're, we're, we've, we've clearly seen some things happen on that front in the last couple of years. As for the um, the traditional um, office buildings and so forth, um, I, I tend to think, I mean, I think Henry makes a powerful point about New York. I mean, I have a, would have a really hard time being all that pessimistic about New York City as such, because it's a really good thing to be the world's leading financial center uh, and to have these amazing, you know, uh, arts and restaurant amenities and all of this. So I tend to think New York will become younger. It will be, if anything, more fun and maybe a little less crazy expensive as maybe people resort in terms of where they live. But I think that for uh, most cities that are kind of big, but not at New York's scale, uh, traditional downtowns, like I mentioned before, are truly a, um, uh, a, on the one hand, if they don't change, they're an albatross, but they're also an opportunity. Um, and I think that if um, cities can really think through how do you turn these traditional downtown and surrounding areas into vibrant places where people want to live, work and play, uh, among other things, you're, you're going to want to put um, green space, uh, you know, small pocket parks, in, you know, right in between two big buildings and so forth. Uh, you're probably going to want to create uh, totally reimagine how traffic flows have, you know, dedicated bike lanes. For people who actually live pretty close to uh, to to work, um, uh, create conditions in which the traffic flows through the downtown quite slowly, so it's actually feels safe and comfortable to actually walk around the place. Uh, it will be difficult to turn some of the the office buildings with the biggest floor plates into apartments because you know people like like to have a window in their apartment and so forth. Um, so that will be a challenge. I think in some cases, older big office towers at the end of the day, need to come down and turn into places where people can live. That will be an, a planning challenge for mayors and city governments and developers, but it's also a huge opportunity. So 
Um, I, you know, I think we are we are seeing some of that happening. I mean, in our own city of Dallas, we're seeing a, a absolute transformation of downtown. It's kind of in the early days in some ways, but the number of parks is growing and the number of bike lanes is growing. And uh, actually, the number of people living there is, uh, while still kind of small, is a heck of a lot bigger than it was even five years yeah. ago. Okay, we are coming to the end of our time, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give you one last question that that came in from our audience. I know. Many of the people listening in today are uh, part of the private sector, and one of the one of the topics that came in is, you know, what are the highest priorities that the private sector can focus on that really helps the public sector? Um, Henry and Colm, I'll let you close with that question. I'll let Colm close and, and and intervene here by just saying I think we we need to see a lot of private sector innovations in education. Uh, involvement in education, but also private sector uh, supported models. Uh, we need to see a lot of innovation in healthcare. Uh, I, I really believe that um, uh, the pandemic scared us and we, we somehow at some deep level, we know that wasn't the last one we're gonna confront. Uh, so I see a lot of cities where urgent care that people didn't really recognize before, now they know exactly where it is in their city. And they're going to utilize it more and more. And so private models of offering healthcare are on a decentralized basis are going to become more, uh, more, more, uh, uh, you know, available. Right. Uh, there will be many other private sector contributions uh, along the lines of retail activity and small spaces and restaurants and many other things. Henry, what a, what a pleasure to do this with you. Thank you for joining us uh, today. Always great to work together. Um, Holly, my thoughts you. on that, Holly, um, uh, there's an enormous role for the private sector. And we we talk, you know, at the Bush Institute to a lot of CEOs, a lot of management types, and they're they're eager, they're hungry. They're, they're saying, help, help us understand how can we actually make a difference in our, in our city. Um, so I, I would agree with Henry, a, a couple of quick themes there. One is uh, very simply innovation. Uh, I would suggest that there are, Henry's just spoken to some of it, that there are three areas where we are, we have not seen enough innovation in taking down the cost of delivering basic things over the last several decades. We haven't seen enough innovation to take down the costs of, for example, higher education uh, or the cost of delivering basic health care. We also have not seen enough innovation in taking down the cost of building new housing, maybe with new materials and so forth. Innovation that takes down the costs of those things can result in our ability to do a lot more of all of those things, and we need a lot more of those of those things. So that's that's a great area that the private sector is likely to lead in. Collaboration. I think I already spoke to this before. Um, there's too much segmentation of the private sector versus the public sector. Never the twain shall meet. This is not a good way for us to build the cities of the future, I would suggest. And lastly, I would say community building. Um, I think we're big believers at the Bush Institute. I, I hope you would agree, Holly, that uh, uh, it's not just about the federal government. It's not just about local government. It's about civil society. Uh, it's about people coming together, working together, sometimes in new and innovative ways. And, uh, you know, and I think the uh, private sector in any city has a significant role to play in, uh, you know, reaching out and building this, this surprising coalition that it can figure out how to tackle some challenge together. Uh, that isn't doesn't just wait for City Hall to get it right or wait for Congress to pass some bill. So there's a huge role for the private sector to play. And uh, there's, you know, a lot, of, a lot of good progress on that front. So we, we look forward to engaging with the private sector as well as with government in our work in this program. 
Right. Well, Henry, Colm, thank you both for participating today. Great conversation. Um, for all of you tuning in, thank you for joining us today. As always, you can find Colm's reports on bushcenter.org and all of the work that we do on these topics. So thanks everyone for being here. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Learn more about the Bush Institute's Blueprint for Opportunity work at www.bushcenter.org slash blueprint for opportunity.